Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Last week, we jumped into this gospel of Mark by reviewing what we know of its author, Mark, as he recorded the eyewitness testimony of Peter. As we jumped in, we also looked at the main themes or questions of the book, namely, who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? And those questions and themes came immediately into focus in the first 15 verses. You may remember we were introduced to Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah who was fully human, but also the fully divine Son of God. And as Jesus began his public ministry, he announced that in him the kingdom of God had arrived, and he invited all who heard him to repent and believe the gospel. So we saw something of who Jesus was and how we are to respond last week, but How did the people actually respond to him? And that's where Mark turns next as he gives us a rapid-fire account of Jesus' early ministry and the response of those who met him. So that's what we'll see this morning. We want to read Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16 down through verse 34. Let's read God's Word together. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Because they knew him. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We pray 
that you would use it by your spirit in our hearts to draw us near to Jesus this morning. We pray it in his name. Amen. In the house behind me growing up lived my friend Bo. Now Bo had and still has a huge personality and a a knack for creativity, which perfectly fit his interest in being a magician. He also had a father who delighted in promoting his son's interest, and so he was always coming to show us his new trick. But his father's support culminated in high school and him renting out the local community theater for him to put on his first full-length magic show as the Great Bodini. And I still remember the great Bodini, and, and it was a remarkable show. We're not talking about a few magic tricks, a few card tricks. We're talking about real rabbits disappearing and handkerchiefs turning into live pigeons flying about and shoes disappearing and showing up in the back of the auditorium. And afterwards, you could hear people asking the same questions over and over. How, how did he do that? You know, what contraption could come up with that type of an illusion? And people were fascinated and they were entertained. But nothing happened that night that set people on edge. Nobody's categories were blown. Everyone knew this was within the normal realm of magic tricks, which only highlights how different people's response was to Jesus when he arrived in Capernaum in the first century AD. And let's not forget that in the first century AD, people knew of magicians. They had rituals for protection against demons. They had prayers for healing. None of those things were new. But Jesus blew their categories. No one had ever spoken like Jesus before. No one had ever done things like Jesus before. Jesus inspired astonishment. He raised their interest. He ignited their yearnings. In fact, one commentator points out that In this gospel, Mark will use at least six different words that are all translated something along the lines of wonder, awe, fear, astonishment, or amazement. As he describes how Jesus' words and actions evoked attitudes and responses that really were fitting for coming into the presence of God. And that's Mark's main point for us this morning as well. That people's immediate response when they met Jesus, the Son of God, was wonder and awe and interest. People's response when they met Jesus, the Son of God, was wonder and awe and interest. And we'll see them respond this way to Jesus' call, to Jesus' authority, and to Jesus' healing in our passage. So let's start by looking at their response to Jesus' call in verses 16 through 20. As Jesus walks along the side of the Sea of Galilee, he approaches two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. All four were fishermen. And you sort of imagine them on the morning on the beach here after a night of fishing, doing their daily routines, chatting maybe about their families or perhaps the happenings around town, maybe even talking about the buzz surrounding John the Baptist and this guy, Jesus, that he had talked about. And the Gospel of John indicates that this is not the first time that Peter and Andrew had seen Jesus, but they must have been excited when this Jesus, whom they had met or heard before, came up to talk to them. They also must have been unprepared for his first words to them. When he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Now, right away, something's different about Jesus here. There were plenty of teachers, plenty of rabbis who had students who would follow them, but in every other situation, it was up to the student to pursue learning from a teacher. They would apply to come to him. But here, Jesus comes to find them. He initiates. He calls. And he doesn't call these four fishermen to study the Torah with him or focus on another goal together. He calls them to follow him. And Peter's own testimony is that all four of these guys immediately left their nets, left their father, father and followed Jesus. I sort of have this picture in mind of the boat just rocking gently in the waves with the nets hanging over the side, abandoned as these men follow Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but the fact that someone is interesting is very unlikely to inspire me to leave everything to follow them. But the fact is that Jesus is not just interesting. Jesus comes and calls to these men with the power of God at work to change their hearts and bring them to leave everything to follow him. In fact, while we typically restrict the word miracle to talk about the rest of the things Jesus will do in this passage, his call of his disciples should really fit in that category as well. For nothing in the natural world can explain or can justify a person's heart so changed that they would be persuaded to follow God rather than their own interests, their own ways, their own goals. And nothing makes it so evident that God still works what we can call miracles today as the response of sinful hearts to the call of Jesus. And just a couple of weeks ago, I heard the testimony of a young woman who this past year left her lesbian lifestyle and committed her life to Christ. In January, I talked with a man who spent eight years in the Lancaster prison on a homicide conviction, who while in prison heard the gospel, read God's word, and came to Christ and now lives with joy for him. I read our missionary updates and hear story after story of Muslims and Hindus and people in China abandoning what everyone around them does and pressures them to do to follow Christ. We hear stories of people who for decades of their life have seen nothing persuasive in the gospel until one day when they give their life to him. And if those aren't miracles, acts of divine power that cut against what is natural given our hearts and our culture in 2022, I don't know what is. For these first disciples, it is that power of God and the person of Jesus that captured their interest in their hearts and led these four fishermen to drop their nets and follow him. Now, before we look at more responses to Jesus, I want to pause for just a minute and consider what it is that Jesus asked these four fishermen. He asked them to follow him. And this request is at the heart of what Jesus asks of all of his people. So what's included in following him? Well, notice that Jesus doesn't tell his disciples right away. Jesus doesn't say, follow me, and here's what that includes. Peter, Peter and Andrew don't sit down and say, well, okay, Jesus, this is a nice uh, job opportunity you've given us, but I'd like to know the details before I commit. We don't get that. And the fact is, the details will be different. Some of these four are going to be martyred and killed for their faith. Some of these four will not. They will live until they pass away naturally. Some will stay near Jerusalem. Others will be sent as far as Rome or to India. 
The details may be different, but that's not the key issue. The key issue is not the details. The key issue is who they were called to follow. And the same will be true for us. The details of our lives are going to be different. Some of us will be called to take the gospel to other nations. Others will be called to live out our testimony here in Lancaster. Some will be called to particularly deep grief and suffering. Others will be called to sacrifice for the Lord in other ways. But every one of us, despite the different details, is called to the same thing. We are called to follow Jesus. And this passage gives us at least three details about what it means to follow Jesus. First, this following Jesus means that we are subject to his will. Now that may mean costly sacrifices, For these four, it meant leaving behind their nets, leaving behind their father, because they were not to do what they wanted to do. They were not to do what was their pattern of life. They were to be subject to the will of Jesus. We're talking about the call of God here, of course, and so sacrifices will be required to follow him. But Paul will capture the difference this makes for us in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, where he writes, the love of Christ controls us. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If this is what Christ has done, then giving our will to him so that we are no longer our own, but have been bought by him is only natural. And following him will not just mean an initial sacrifice, it will also mean regularly looking to Jesus and continually submitting our will to him so that we don't declare the priority of our plans, but say, as James 4.15 tells us to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Because submission to his will, giving up ourselves to do whatever he calls us to do, is the first part of following Jesus. The second part of following Jesus means obeying his word. I recently heard the story of a boy whose dream was to be a judo champion, but his dream took a hit when he unexpectedly lost his left arm. A judo master, however, heard of this desire and came to him and offered to make him a judo champion if he would follow his instructions carefully and do exactly what he said. The boy agreed, so the master proceeded to spend more than an entire year teaching the student just one move. This this boy was perplexed. He may have asked why he could not learn more, but he followed the master's instructions and practiced the move over and over and over and over, at the end of which the master said, okay, you're ready to be the judo champion. I'm enrolling you in a tournament. And the boy said, but I only know one move. How can I be ready? And the master said, trust me. Just obey what I've told you. So he enrolled them in the tournament. And the boy went undefeated and was crowned a judo champion. And the boy said to his master, how did you know that I was ready? And the master said, well, I only taught you one move. But it is the hardest move in judo. And the only known defense is to grab the opponent's left arm. And so the fact is, following the words of the master are part of following him, even when we don't understand his instructions, perhaps. For these four fishermen, they might not have known what it meant to follow Jesus or why they had to follow him right then, 
But they did it immediately. And we know from the lives of these four that they continued to follow Jesus' words and to obey his word throughout their lives. And the same is true for us, whether his word always makes sense to us or not. Following Jesus will mean obeying his word. And then thirdly, following Jesus means doing what he did or joining his mission. Jesus highlights this specifically saying that these four should become fishers of men. See, Jesus' goal was to announce the coming of the kingdom of God and to call any who would to respond and come to the kingdom. And now the disciples are supposed to join him in this task of casting the gospel to gather a harvest of his people. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, this passage shows us the disciples submitting to his will, obeying his word, and joining his mission. Of course, that is a lot to ask. And yet we read that the disciples responded immediately. What would make the disciples respond to the costliest summons they ever received with such immediacy? It's the person of Jesus, who was unlike anyone who had ever spoken to them before. And I pray that for us too, the person of Jesus would lead us to follow him, to submit to his will, to obey his word, and to join his mission. Well, all this is part of the response to Jesus' call, but let's move on now to verses 21 to 28 and look at the second reason for the people's response to Jesus, and that is his authority. See, verse 21 tells us that shortly after calling these two pairs of brothers, Jesus took them with him into Capernaum and they went to the synagogue. Now, you'll remember that the synagogue was the gathering place for Jews in any city other than Jerusalem where the temple was. But in a synagogue, there was not an official teacher parallel to a a pastor of a church. Rather, it was a gathering place for the people to come around the scrolls of God's word. And there would be an opportunity for those there to read and comment. Of course, the scribes were the most knowledgeable and probably the most frequent to comment on God's word. But we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus routinely taking the opportunity to read God's word and to comment. Of course, the people were probably used to different scribes teaching and commenting. Different scribes may have traveled throughout the area, and so they would have heard many different voices. And yet, Jesus was different. The text tells us he taught as one who had authority. Hearing Jesus teach from God's word was like the difference between reading a student's book report about a novel and listening to the author of the novel himself tell you about what he has written. Because everyone else talked about what teachers over the years had said about God's word, but now the Son of God himself has arrived to speak about his own words and their meaning and their fulfillment. And the response was that the people immediately recognized that something was different about Jesus than anyone else they had ever heard, and they were astonished. Jesus' authority, of course, is tested directly in verse 23 as he comes into contact with the enemy, a demon-possessed man. Now, the Jews had rituals for countering demonic influence. There were prayers and incantations that could be prayed over a person with a demon. They often would use music to try to charm a demon. There were also rituals that included burning herbs or submerging a person underwater to try to drive the demon away. And so the idea of driving out a demon was not new or unexpected at all. 
What is new, what is unheard of, is that a person would speak with authority, assuming that he had authority over a demon. And what was even more unheard of is that the demon would listen and obey. Here we have Jesus simply uttering a word, be quiet, be silent, and leave the man. And at a word, the demon cries out in terror, knowing who Jesus is and assuming that the arrival of God's king means judgment against the kingdom of darkness. And that demon flees. That is an authority that the people had never seen, had never experienced, and would never have even thought to take or expect. Now, we'll have much more to say about demon possession as we go through the Gospel of Mark, but for now, the point of this episode is to clearly reinforce the same point Mark is pressing here, that Jesus acts with a startling authority, and his authority sparks a wonder, an amazement, and an interest in the people, such that verse 28 tells us his fame spread through the whole region of Galilee. Well, then look down at verses 29 to 34 and notice the people's response to Jesus' healing. Immediately after this event in the synagogue, we're told that Jesus and these four, perhaps others, went back to Peter's house, where they found that the mother of Peter's wife was sick. It says, immediately the disciples told him about her. And I I imagine the conversation going something like this as they come in the door from the synagogue. Peter's wife says to him, Peter, mom is not well. I'm, I'm worried about her. And Andrew pipes up, well, Jesus just drove out a demon with a single word. Maybe he could do something about it. Let's tell him. And all four of them say, yeah, that's a great idea. And they go and immediately tell Jesus. And Jesus goes and takes her hand and raises her up. Again, no medicine, no incantation, no ritual, no herbs, no cleansing, simply a touch. And the fever leaves her so completely and so utterly and so immediately that she gets up and starts serving them dinner. Now, we know how sickness works. We know what it's like to be lying with fever throughout a day. We don't just jump up at a second's notice and serve dinner to this crowd of guests after church. But this is not the normal situation. Something outside of our experience is at work here in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I love Sinclair Ferguson's comment when he writes, like all miracles, this is a clue to the identity of Jesus and the significance of his coming. She was sick and debilitated. Her life, however, momentarily had become useless. What Jesus did was to restore her to what she was meant to be, a whole and healthy woman. And thus restored, she served Jesus and his disciples. And in doing so, Jesus gave his disciples a visible example of what he does for everyone that he touches and calls, making us whole, restoring us to what we were meant to be that we might serve him and his people. See, doctors couldn't do this back then, and doctors can't do that today. Priests, scribes, rich, powerful, none of them could do that then, and they can't do it today. But Jesus comes, unlike anyone who had ever come before, and unlike anyone who had ever come since. His call changed people's hearts with a word. He taught with authority as if God was speaking directly through him. He cast out demons with authority so that they fled at a mere word from him. 
and he healed immediately, completely restoring a person to wholeness and service. And so it's no wonder that as the sun set that Saturday evening and the Sabbath came to a close and its regulations came to an end, that you could almost feel the town surge forward as the whole city came and gathered at his front door. And it says that the sick were healed and demons were cast out. J.C. Ryle notes that this episode in Capernaum is a good example for us. For the instinct of everyone on that night was to bring whatever troubled them to Jesus. And as Ryle puts it, yes, means are to be used diligently without question. But after all, the first thing to be done is to cry to the Lord Jesus for help. Let us know what to do when sickness or bereavement or cross or disappointment breaks in like an armed man. Let us do what they did in Capernaum and let us come at once to Jesus. It's the right move now, just as it was the right move then. Because Jesus is utterly unique. What it is about him is not yet clear to the people in Mark chapter 1. There is much they need to learn about this man, Jesus. But given what we know now, we can say with certainty that in Jesus, men met God. And when men meet God, the natural response is to come to the one who sparks our wonder and our awe and our amazement, and the one who heals us and makes us whole. This is the response of the disciples to Jesus' call and to Jesus' authority and to Jesus' healing. But as we come to an end this morning, I want us to take just a minute to reflect on this list of miracles that Jesus has done here. We're going to see many more miracles that Jesus will do in this gospel. And so right up front, I want us to make sure we remember what a miracle is and why Jesus did them. So first, we should clarify that when the Bible is talking about miracles, it is not talking about something amazing or unexpected like the miracle on ice because no one expected the U.S. to beat the Russian hockey team in 1984. See, many have attempted to explain away these biblical miracles as just that kind of thing. No one expected a man from Nazareth to be able to have the skills to heal sick people. That was amazing. Or no one had experienced such genuine love as Jesus had, and it just inspired and transformed lives. And so those who remembered it called them miracles. That, my friends, is hogwash. There were inspiring events and unexpected people all throughout ancient history, and no ancient historian ever bills them as miracles or miracle workers. Nor is a miracle just something we can't explain. People in the first century were not stupid or gullible. They had magicians. They had healers. These types of things were well known in the first century, and Jesus was not like them. It inspired a wonder and an astonishment. No, miracles are cold, hard facts. Miracles in the Old Testament, miracles in the New Testament are events which were cross-examined until the evidence pointed to no other conclusion but that God had stepped into our world and acted outside the normal pattern of events on behalf of his people. To assume that these were just some sort of pre-scientific duped people is an arrogance that is unbefitting any of our study or response to history. 
That was true in the Old Testament. It was true in the life of Jesus. It's true when God intervenes to heal and to save today. But why? Why did Jesus do miracles? We need to ask that question. And here it's important for us to remember that miracles were never done for their own sake. Miracles were not tricks to amaze people, nor were the physical effects of a miracle Jesus' main point. We have to remember that there were many who Jesus did heal, but many that were not healed in Israel at this time. Because Jesus did not come with the purpose of miraculously healing as many people from sickness as possible. That's not why he came. Miracles were always meant to be signs to point to and verify the truth of who Jesus was and what he was preaching. They were signs that said, this Jesus is from God. He will do what he says he will do that we might believe A well-known writer and speaker, Eric Metaxas, puts it this way. He says, miracles are signs, and like all signs, they are never about themselves. They point to something beyond themselves, to God himself. They are clues that that other world is not in our imagination, but is actually out there. Or in the case of Jesus, that that other world has actually come here to meet us and to save us. And that is why, while there was much for people to learn in Mark chapter 1, there is such a buzz as they see these things that Jesus did because the miracles are doing their job. They are signs indicating that God is at work among them and that they should listen to Him, for He has come from God. And so as we go through this gospel, we want to remember the purpose of Jesus' miracles. They are signs verifying who he is and justifying belief in his name and his word. And so I would say to us, as we read this gospel, every time we come to a miracle in our study of Mark, it should be for us what it was for the people of Capernaum, a bright and flashing sign confirming to us that Jesus is the Son of God as he said he was, that we might respond with wonder in awe, with repentance and faith. If at any point in this gospel we are tempted to ignore the claims of Jesus, his miracles should challenge that temptation, for they are God's act to get our attention and point us to who he is. If at any point we have doubts about our faith, his miracles should help to assure us in our hearts of the truth of who Jesus is, like notes from a long-distance lover reaffirming the reality of their love and care for us. If we gloss over these stories because we've heard them so many times before, then my prayer is that we might let them arrest our minds and our hearts afresh. Let them point us to the person of Jesus that we, like the disciples and like the crowds, might respond with renewed wonder, with renewed awe, amazement, interest, desire, and worship, that we too might come to Jesus and follow him and find in him the one who forgives all our sins and makes us whole. Let's pray. Dear God, how we thank you for sending us your son, Jesus, a man unlike any other that ever lived, 
And how we thank you for this record of the way your people responded to him, recognizing right away that when the divine came in the flesh, they had never met anyone like him before and found in him an amazement and attraction and the one who could meet their deepest needs, the forgiveness of their sins and the making of them whole. And Father, as we come now to this table before us, I pray that it too, a sign you have given us, would remind us and assure us of the reality of your forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.